If you've ever asked anyone if they were going to heaven, you might have heard, well, sure, I'm a good person. Maybe you've even thought that yourself. Good, or at least good enough. Well, the Apostle Paul thought he was good enough. In fact, he had a list of seven things that he considered reasons that he deserved to go to heaven. That is, until he met Christ. And then Paul describes this radical change of heart and mind in Philippians 3, and that's the focus of our study today on Through the Bible with Dr. J. Vernon McGee. I'm Steve Schwetz, and as you find your place in God's Word, welcome Greg Harris, Through the Bible's president. And Greg, what do you think is the greatest hindrance to the gospel today? Is it pride? Is it maybe thinking that you're good enough? What is it? Well, I would say yes, but I have a feeling Dr. McGee is going to answer it definitively for <laughs> us, so I'm going to hedge my answer a little bit, okay? okay. Uh, but, you know, humility and and dropping our pride really is essential, yeah. and we see that in the tone of the letters, that people who encounter the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot stay proud when you encounter the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we hear that from our our letters and listeners. Let's hear some now. Yeah, I, I like this one from Kim because it's a good letter, but she also addresses it to me, so I appreciate that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dear Steve, this morning you asked, what have I learned during my trip on the Bible bus? This is it. God's word is a steady friend. It speaks truth when I need correction, peace when I am overwhelmed, joy when I am in those dark places, encouragement when I am in distress. Every morning at 6.30 a.m., I sit at my kitchen table, coffee in hand, sun rising, and my good friend, Dr. McGee, explores more about our steady friend, Jesus. His word is there through every season of my life, providing all that I need for each day. God is so good. Uh, Steve, I was just thinking about all of the pictures and the vignettes that we hear from our listeners, not just here in English in North America, but all around the world, whether it's a shopkeeper yeah. or whether it's a taxi driver or some some farmer who's out in a rice paddy listening to Through the Bible. It, it's just it, it would be really fun if we could ever amalgamate all the different pictures of how our listeners hear and receive Through the Bible. Yeah, that would yeah. be neat. Um, so that was just my little you know, excitement about, you know, maybe someday in heaven, it, when we meet in Pavilion B, like you said, yes. uh, in heaven. Maybe, yeah, maybe we'll, we'll have a kitchen table thing with the sun rising, although there will be no sun because Christ will be our, it's true. our, our it's eternal true. light. But maybe we'll have some synthetic sun and yeah. and coffee in hand. The Lord can that. do anything. Yeah. So let's, let's go back to our great responses that we hear from the lovely people that sit on the Bible bus with us. Here's Sam in South Carolina who writes... Please send us another set of the listen, share, and read Bible bus passes. We love handing them out when we talk to anyone about Jesus, whether in the store, restaurant, or just walking around in the city. Most people are excited to find a great way to hear God's Word taught daily. The app is our way of listening, and we love sharing how easy the app is for us to study and be on the prayer team. Thank you for all you do to help us fling the seed. Yeah, once again, that is just such an encouragement. And if you would like a Bible bus pass, you can just either call us at 1-800-65-BIBLE or email. Email would also work. And we have read, listen, and share. Three options for you. They're great to have in your wallet, as Sam has mentioned. Greg, we're almost out of time. Why don't you pray for us? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joyful journey on the Bible bus and the way that we all can celebrate you, the power of your word, the power of your son to save us and to redeem us for all eternity and the power to share that with that great news with the whole world. 
We love you and we pray you'll bless the mission of Through the Bible today. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's Dr. J. Vernon McGee with our study of Philippians 3 on Through the Bible. Now, friends, we're going to discuss today the greatest revolution that ever took place. That was the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Now, in the first nine verses of the third chapter of Philippians, we find that this was a tremendous thing that happened to him, that he had changed his bookkeeping system of the past. And he tells us what he had on one side of the ledger and then what he had on the other side of the ledger. Now, what happened to Paul was this. On one side of the ledger, when he was a Pharisee under Judaism, he had so many things that he added up, and it made a pretty big total, so much so that he felt that all of these things commended him to God. These things were credits to him. Now, over on the debit side, there was somebody he hated, and that was Jesus Christ, and he was trying to eliminate the followers of Jesus Christ. That was the debit side, the credit side, the debit side. When he met the Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road, he changed his bookkeeping system. What was a debit became a credit. What was a credit became a debit. Now, friends, that's revolution. Suppose that when I got back the other day off of a conference trip, I'd gone down to the local department store where my wife exercises her marital freedom in using a credit card down there, and she generally has a pretty nice bill. Suppose that I had gone down there, and we got back, and I'd said, I want to pay the bill, and I'd handed in a check. And the bookkeeper would have said to me, Why, Mr. McGee, since you've been gone, we changed our bookkeeping system. What was a debit? It's a credit. What's a credit? It's a debit. And you don't owe us. We owe you. Now, friends, if the economy of this country permitted that to happen, I'd be a millionaire, and I'd be getting instead of giving all the time. And that would be so upsetting that you can talk about what inflation would do and what the monetary system of the world is being shaken today. My friend, that would shake it. That would upset it. Well, that's what happened to Paul on the Damascus Road. He's going to tell us about it now, and he's going to tell us what he had to begin with. But before that, he says, Now, I want to talk to you Philippians, and I want to tell you certain things. He says, for instance, here, first of all, he says, I want you to beware of dogs. Now, this is not a word that he's giving to the mailman. I don't know why. We had a dog, a husky, and that dog hated the mailman. I don't know why, because we changed mailman quite frequently during the time that we had the dog. And each one of them, he had the same attitude toward them. And so probably this would be a word for the mailman. Beware of dogs. But that's not really what Paul's talking about. When he says dogs, what does he mean? Well, I think we can get some insight on this if we go back to Isaiah, the 56th chapter, verse 10. And Isaiah there is warning the people against false prophets in his day. Those that attempted to comfort the people all the time instead of giving them warning all the time. And that's a grave danger today because 
in our very affluent society where comfort is the last word. I'll be very frank with you. When we travel, we're at the age that we like to rest. I look for a motel that's comfortable. I'm not roughing it. I just don't believe I'd be able to make my engagements if I carried a sleeping bag with me and slept by the side of the road. Just couldn't do it physically. I look for comfort, and I think all of us do. And as a result, there's a danger today in the ministry of just comforting the saints all the time. I had a man, he was a prominent member, that left the church that I ministered in. And he gave us the reason that I never gave him any comfortable messages. Well, I didn't know it at the time, but I found out later that in his business, he wasn't exactly ethical always. The fact of the matter is that there were some thought he was very unethical. And very frankly, he didn't need messages of comfort. He needed messages of warning. And I think that was the thing he didn't like. I'm not sure of what he thought I knew something, which I absolutely did not know. And I never preached a sermon at an individual in my life, so it could not be that. But I'm of the opinion that there are too many folk today want comfort when they actually probably need to have something else. When I went to see the doctor, I tried my best to be evasive with him, and I told him that I knew somebody that had the same trouble I did, and they were given medicine and got over it. And my doctors, he examined me. He said, now, Donna McGee, if you need medicine, medication, I'm going to give it to you. But he says, I don't think you need medication. You're in trouble. Well, now, that's not very nice to say, is it? But I've thanked him for it. Many times he said to me very candidly, he says, I'm going to tell you the truth, because if I don't, you won't have confidence in me. Now, he said, you have cancer. <laughs> I've thanked him for that ever since. May I say to you, I want to hear the truth. Don't you want to hear the truth? Well, there were a great many prophets in Isaiah's day, false prophets that were comforting the people. In fact, they were not warning them at all. Now, in Isaiah 56:10, this is the way he describes them. His watchmen are blind. They're all ignorant. They're all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. The dumb dogs. He likens the false prophet to dumb dogs. You see, the sheepdog, I tell you, he watched the sheep. And if a lion or a bear made a foray into the flock, that dog was there to run him away and bark like mad and gave a warning of approach of any kind of danger. But you see, the false prophets, they were slumbering. They gave no warning at all. And Isaiah was unpopular because people said, let us sleep. And that's what the danger in America today. We're going to sleep, friend not just under drugs and alcohol, but under the affluent blanket that we're in, under the idea of comfort, of something for nothing, take it easy, have a good day. Those are the things today that we're seeking. And as a result, why, somebody ought to be doing a little barking today. And so he called the false prophets dumb dogs. I'm not sure, but that's where the DD degree originated. Dumb dog degree, <laughs> not saying what you ought to say as a prophet of God, as a man of God. And so Paul says, beware of dogs. 
Beware of these men that are constantly comforting you and are not giving you the Word of God. And he says, beware of evil workers. Now, some are evil workers. They're absolutely not honest. I don't want to go into that today. Now, beware of the concision. Now, he slurs the word circumcision. Why? Because he says they are really no longer the circumcision. And he calls them the concision. But he is warning against Judaism, the legalizers, those that were wanting to put Christians under the law. He says, beware of the concision. Now he says, we are the circumcision. What does Paul mean by that? Well, I think he made it very clear over in the epistle to the Galatians when he came to the end of that epistle. He says, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So he says the old circumcision is out. It's whether you're in Christ, and that is the true circumcision. That's what he's saying here. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. Now listen to this. And have no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. Now, don't you see what the enemy now is going to say? And they did say. They would come along and say, well, now, you know, Brother Paul, he says that we're not to have any confidence in the flesh. We're not to trust the rituals. We're not to trust the sacrifices. We're not to trust even the law. The law won't save us. And that we're not to rest upon these things but that we are to have no confidence in the flesh. Now, Brother Paul does well to say that because actually he doesn't have very much to rest upon. He has no background. He never was very far along in our religion. He never really knew much about it, and his life never did measure up. So he does well to say that, of course. All right, Paul's going to answer that. He says, we have no confidence in the flesh. But he says, listen to him now, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. Paul said, if there's anybody that could have confidence in the flesh, I could have confidence in the flesh even more. Listen to him. Verse 4, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Paul says, I will put my religious life down by any man, and I'll measure up to him. And not only that, I will have something left over. I'm more. Now, he's going to mention here seven things that before he met Christ on the Damascus Road, he trusted in. And I want you to notice these seven things here that he mentions because they are, very frankly, very important. Now, will you notice, he says first, circumcise the eighth day. Now, what does that mean? Well, he didn't get up out of the crib on the eighth day and go down to the synagogue and have this done or to the temple. It means that his parents took him. You remember the Lord Jesus was taken up to the temple on the eighth day and circumcised circumcised the eighth day. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means he had godly parents who reared him according to the Mosaic law. 
It means that he had wonderful parents. And my friend, that's an asset. That's an asset to any man. One of the things that I think hurt me more and helped me back more in my early ministry than anything else was the fact that I was not brought up in a Christian home. My dad was a heavy drinker. He would not darken the door of a church. He was very bitter and very much prejudiced. He made me go to Sunday school, however, and I do thank God for that. But I never saw a Bible or heard a prayer. And when I went away even to seminary, I did not know the books of the Bible. I was totally, woefully ignorant of the Bible. And there are people who think that I still am. But I have improved a little on it. Not much, but a little. And so I would meet other fellows, and they seemed to know so much. Brought up in a Christian home, with a Christian background. And what an asset that seemed to be to them. And I always felt deprived. I always felt that I'd missed something. Now, Paul could say, I was circumcised the eighth day. And that means he had godly parents. And now, notice the second thing that is mentioned here. He says, I'm of the stock of Israel. And I want to tell you that there was many an enemy that he had, a Judaizer, that was a half-breed. Paul was not. Paul says, I'm of the stock of Israel. I have a genealogy, and I think you could have checked Paul's genealogy in the temple in that day, that I have a background. I belong. I'm in. I'm not a half-breed at all. I belong. And that has a tremendous value, by the way. My feeling is that a great many of us that were not brought up in the church and When we entered, we had to sort of prove ourselves. I've always felt it probably was a handicap. It's hurt the church because I have seen many times a young man brought into the ministry who was as liberal as he could be. And obviously, he failed in the examination. And some old brother would get up and say, Now, I knew this boy's father. He was a great preacher. He stood for the things of God. But you see, we weren't ordaining the boy's father. It was the boy. And on the basis of that, it counts. I'll say that. It'll count in any circle today if you can say, I'm one of those that belong to the in group. I belong to the now generation. That's worth something. And Paul could say that. There's no question about his genealogy. Now, will you notice the third asset that he had? He said, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. (laughs) And say that was something. Because you see, Benjamin was a son of Jacob by Rachel. And she died when she gave birth to Benjamin. And you remember old Jacob called him the son of his right hand. That's what his name really meant. Because Rachel says, call him Benoni. He's the son of my Sarah. He's brought my death. But old Jacob, when he looked down in the crib and saw that little fellow, he had the eyes of his mother. And Jacob, I tell you, Rachel's the one bright spot in his life before Peniel. And as a result, why, old Jacob just leaned on his son. He's going to be the son of my right hand. He's going to be my walking stick from now on. He's something special. And the tribe of Benjamin was like that. And the first king of the nation, Saul, 
came from Benjamin. And I have a notion that Paul had been named for King Saul of the tribe of Benjamin. That was his name that he was given at birth. This is something that meant that he really was up. He belonged to the tribe of Benjamin, you see. And it's nice to be able to say my father was a preacher, a minister of the Word that stood for the things of God, or he was an outstanding layman. Those things are worth something. Of course they are. And they are things that men brag about today. I meet so many people that when I ask them about their relationship to Christ, always come back like this. Well, Dr. McGee, I was brought up in the Baptist church, or I was brought up in the Presbyterian church. I was brought up in the Methodist church, and my grandfather, he founded a certain church, and there's a window down there in that church that's just dedicated to him. And that's the reason a lot of the folk today won't leave a liberal denomination, because grandpa's got a window somewhere that's dedicated to him. May I say to you, that's an asset. I have to admit that it is, although I feel like it's a great hindrance today. But he belonged to the tribe of Benjamin. That was an asset. And if you don't think that was enough, the fourth thing, he says, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrew. Paul says, I belong to the highest strata of the religious circle. I was up in the top echelon. Now, the fifth thing, he says, is touching the law of Pharisee. Now, the Pharisee represented the very best in Israel. The Pharisees were a religio-political party that had arisen sometime after the captivity or during it. And as a religious party, they were fundamental. They believed in the integrity of the Scriptures. They believed in angels. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in miracles. And they were also a political party. They were extremely nationalistic. And they thought at first, when they sent Nicodemus to Jesus, that somehow or another they could hitch their little wagon to his star and that they could establish the kingdom here upon this earth. They were the best in Israel. And Paul says, I was a Pharisee. And not only that, touching the law of Pharisee, but sex concerning zeal persecuting the church. Now you say to me, well, that's nothing to brag of. It was in that day. He had led in persecuting the Christians. The other Pharisees were willing to sit down when they ran them out of Jerusalem. Paul said, I'm not. I'm going to ferry them out all over the world. And he was on the way to Damascus at the time of his conversion. And then the seventh thing, touching the righteousness which is in the law blameless. Now, Paul doesn't mean that he was sinless. He said blameless. Because back in Romans, he makes it clear that he broke the law, and he broke one of the laws, by the way, that you and I today may not attach very much importance to. Over in the seventh chapter of Romans, he speaks of the fact that the law, something that, well, here's the way he puts it in Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Now, you cannot break the commandment, Thou shalt not steal, but what you'll have the stuff on you, or you may leave your fingerprints back at the scene of the crime. And the same thing would apply to murder. When you commit murder, you've got a corpus delecti on your hands, and they're hard to get rid of, I'm told. And you cannot commit adultery without somebody knowing about it. 
You just couldn't do that sin without it. But you can cut it, and nobody would be the wiser. So if Paul had kept quiet, we might think that he'd reached the place of sinless perfection. But he very frankly says he hadn't. He said the law slew him. And what he's saying here is this. He brought the proper sacrifice. He brought a sin offering. Now, these are the things that Paul had on the credit side of the ledger. And these are things that there are multitudes of people today trusting in in our churches, church membership. Paul had all of that. He had the whole bit. And he says that did not save him, nor did it satisfy him. And today, multitudes are resting on this sort of thing. Now we're going to see next time what really happened to the Apostle Paul. May God richly bless you, my beloved. Do you remember the day you chose to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? If you've never turned to Him as your Savior, we'd sure love to share a few free resources that explain more. You can visit ttb.org and click on How Can I Know God? Or you can always call us. 1-800-65-BIBLE is the number. I'm Steve Schwetz, and as always, I'll meet you back here next time as we make our way through the Bible. Through the Bible exists to take God's whole word to the whole world. And we invite you to stand with us with your faithful prayer and financial support. Where will God's word go today?